welcome to The Podluck, serving up bite-sized tastes of the best theology. I'm your host, Megan Westra. Grab a plate and let's dig in. As always, I'm your host, Megan Westra, and today we're going to be talking about religious pluralism. So just like in the episodes on atonement theories, this is not meant to be an authoritative take. This is not exhaustive by any means, but it's just meant to ground you in the conversation as we approach our question for season one, what does it mean to be saved? So Religious pluralism has two major functions. One is that we all coexist and navigate life within a pluralist society to a degree, right? Many of us work, live, go to school with, uh, are neighbors with, partners in uh, all kinds of relationships with people who adhere to a different religion or no religion at all. That's just the way things are. A second function is to hold pluralism as a way of understanding all religions at their best as teaching the same basic truths and pointing to the same God or sense of the divine. Paul Knitter of Union Theological Seminary notes that for pluralists, the manyness of religions is not just de facto the way things are, but de jour, the way things need to be. So people like Paul Knitter and uh, John Sabrino Uh, who was a liberation theologian, draw our attention to the fact that Jesus wasn't issuing altar calls and wasn't asking people to check a box or say a prayer, that Jesus was announcing a kingdom breaking in. Both Mark and Luke record a story about the 12 disciples confronting Jesus, about people healing others and driving out demons. But Jesus responds with, whoever's not against us is for us. In Mark 3, Jesus notes that evil can't drive out evil, and a house divided against itself cannot stand. So for religious pluralists, they would say that the path of the divine is leading us toward you know, life and love and restoration and peace, and whatever is within that path is, is good. In Matthew 25, Jesus says that the measure used on the day of judgment is not a profession of faith, but acts of mercy. Whenever you saw me hungry and fed me, whenever you saw someone thirsty, you gave me something to drink. Wherever you saw someone sick and imprisoned and you visited them, whatever you did to the least of these, you did to me. So whomever is working for peace and wholeness and restoration of the world as a whole is part of the kingdom of God. Even C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes this. He writes, there are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted by him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy and to leave in the background, though he might still say he believed, in the Buddhist teaching on certain other points, end quote. Some pluralists address the exclusive language in scripture, like Jesus as the one true God, the only one who brings salvation, things like that, as likening it to the superlative terms that 
uh, that the authors of scripture are using. Kind of like if I say that my spouse is the most handsome man in the world, that's not ontologically true, right? He's not objectively the most handsome man in the world, but because he's my spouse, because I love him, then I would say, of course, he's the most handsome man in the world. If I haven't had a cup of coffee yet and it's 2 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon after uh, church service or something like that, then it's going to be the best cup of coffee I've ever drank in my life. Not because it's necessarily the best cup of coffee, but just because I'm so excited about that cup of coffee. And so some pluralists will say that this is the way that the language in particularly the Christian scriptures or the New Testament is functioning when they refer to Jesus. That these people who are writing these texts are so excited and they're so compelled by Jesus that they're writing in these superlative terms. That Jesus is the only way. He is the best. He is the, the one true mediator of God and humanity. So no more... Uh, is my child the most brilliant child in the world, then Jesus is the only way in in this logic. Um, It's a superlative term. It's a way of speaking. Um, So at its best, pluralism is enriching and helps us see the commonality within the human experience, that there are certain things that are true of humanity regardless of where you are from or how you were raised or what your Uh, religious or political persuasions are, there's some things that are common for all of us. Uh, This can combat violence and violent propensities. If we start to see more of what we share in common than what keeps us apart, then that helps us live as more peaceful people. It also means that we have a greater well of wisdom to draw from, that we can learn from multiple traditions and draw on the wisdom of the ages throughout the course of human history all over the world. Uh, but there's also challenges, just like with everything. So there can be a tendency to gloss over distinctions because as much as we hold in common, there's also things that are distinct. Um, this particularly gets sticky when we think about the power dynamics at play with the construct of race. So white people especially tend to uh, find something that they think is cool or helpful, and then they can co-opt or appropriate it. So in particular, with regard to that, um, we need to be mindful that when we are holding things with a pluralist mind that we aren't appropriating, especially uh, people who, like me, find themselves um, on the social location of, of whiteness and the privilege that is afforded that. Um, so we need to be aware of those things and the ways in which we are utilizing or drawing from teachings uh, from different religions or from different cultures. So this is a little bit about pluralism and the benefits of it, um, the challenges of it, certainly not exhaustive, as I said at the top of the episode, but just to ground us in the conversation. There tends to be uh, anxiety uh, if you are coming from an evangelical framework around the idea of pluralism. Uh, So I just want to say that like, while there are benefits and there are challenges, we need to be able to enter into dialogue uh, around and about pluralism without this sense of, of dread or anxiety or a feeling that uh, if you stay in an exclusive framework, that that is going to somehow be uh, shamed or something like that. But can we just engage in the conversation honestly 
with where we're at and how we hold things and uh, be open to considering uh, the way that somebody else holds something as also potentially grounded in scripture and in tradition. Uh, Like today, there's certainly uh, places in scripture that we could look to and we can appeal to. Uh, There's people throughout the course of history uh, who, you know, have held that, um, held these positions as well, like Lewis. The other thing I want to draw back to our attention is, uh, like I said in the episode on exclusivism, the way that we think about religious affiliation has shifted dramatically over time. So for early church uh, fathers, early church mothers, the way that they held belief and faith and religious adherence is totally different than the way that we hold that today. Uh, There's a really, really great book about the development of that over the course of time uh, called Before Religion by Brett Nogbree. Um, It's a pretty dense read, so I will warn you of that. Uh, It's a history text, uh, so definitely not something to just like toss in your beach bag, although I guess summer is ending, so maybe there's not as many books that we're tossing into beach bags, but um, something that takes a little bit more work to get through, but very good about tracking the religious development, uh, the development of the the construct of religion um, and how we hold this. So uh, that's a good thing to check out um, if there's uh, thoughts that you have or questions that you have about like, hey, how did we get to this point where we have you know, a a strong religious affiliation uh, that is devoid um, or often divorced from our political affiliation or our uh, nationality or something like that um, as it is today. So I'll put the link to that book in the show notes. Also, I'll put the link to um, a debate uh, between Knitter, who I quoted earlier, Paul Knitter, um, and uh, he debated an exclusivist, And there's a transcript of that debate uh, that I'll link to in the show notes as well. This has been The Podluck. Thanks for tuning in. To make sure that you never miss an episode, please make sure that you've subscribed wherever you get your podcast. Please also take time to leave a written review uh, or a rating uh, as this helps the podluck be more visible to others. To support the podluck, please visit our Patreon page. For as little as a dollar a month, you can get access to a Slack channel. Um, that will help you have conversations, connect you with others who are thinking about these things um, in deep ways. And uh, so far, there's some pretty good conversation in there. I need to respond today to um, some posts that I saw in there. So get in on that. It's a good time. Um, Also, to share your thoughts or to share episodes on social media, please use at podluckpodcast on Twitter or at the podluckpodcast. at the Podluck Podcast. There we go on Instagram. Um, this has been the Podluck. Please tune in next time as we dish it up and talk about Christian universalism. So make sure you grab a plate and begin with us. <laughs>